Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miners 200th episode. I am Adrian Pocabelli, and I welcome you to this grand occasion, a bit of a blockbuster, doubleheader, summer extravaganza here. We have... Magda Gardner is joining us for the first time from the Canadian Mining Journal. She's going to talk about Canada's top 40 mining companies, and that felt like an apropos subject on such a day. And we also have Clive Johnson from B2 Gold, and he is going to deliver a thought leadership interview. They were thought leadership sponsors in the last Canadian Mining Symposium. So we are doing a thought leadership piece with Clive Johnson. And we also have a new sponsor, Petro-Canada Lubricants. So welcome to them. We're going to hear from them shortly. And that's going to be eight episodes. And that is going to be part of a new series going on. So lots going on. And uh, yeah, gold is back above $2,000. Silver is back knocking on the door of $30, and Warren Buffett, people are making a very big deal about Warren Buffett's, you know, $500 million investment in Barrick shares. But, you know, to me, it was almost negligent. The, like, I don't know the gold holdings at uh, Berkshire Hathaway, but I was looking at the cash that they had on hand at the end of 2019 or, you know, cash equivalents and treasuries or whatever, it's something like $120 billion. And so if they're allocating half a billion dollars, that's not stampeding into gold as some people are describing it. It is kind of a due diligence and absolute minimum. I mean, Buffett has a reputation of not liking gold I don't see this as a huge change. I see them not liking gold a little bit less. That's what that allocation tells me. Who knows? Maybe we will see a much larger allocation in the third quarter. But there you have it. So Buffett is betting on Barrick, and it's an interesting choice why he chose Barrick. I wonder if it's because they're a little bit lower in the valuation than Newmont. Maybe he likes Mark Bristow's management and his track record at Rangold. It's not necessarily Warren Buffett. I mean, the team over there, when you have that much money, it must be a whole operation. Let's just look at the PEs because it's quite interesting. Yes. So Newmont has a price to earnings ratio of 14.23. You know, I mean, 15 is kind of your classic PE ratio for a stock. And so you might say in an expensive market, Newmont still looks cheap. But let's look at Barrick and their PE. Barrick was up like 10% yesterday on the Buffett news. And actually, all the gold stocks sort of went with that Barrick a PE of 12. So the value is at Barrick, and I think they like the management. The yield, I mean, Buffett, we talk about the dividend yield with Clive Johnson, and he was particularly proud of his dividend yield, as I think miners should be. I think. Miners have such a terrible reputation, I would argue, in the financial markets as being these kind of wasteful, backward-looking kinds of companies that often lose money, make terrible acquisitions, and this sort of thing. I think if the mining community really wanted to turn some heads, you start 
posting dividends and respectable dividends and you start growing those dividends, people can't, you know, they, they can't talk down to you anymore. They can't disparage you when you're raising dividends in this kind of environment. So Barrick is at 1%. Newmont is at 1.46%, but Newmont has gone up more. So interesting, right? So these guys are minting money right now. Uh, gold is, like I was saying, gold's back above $2,000. So there is no greater time to have and initiate the Global Mining Symposium, which is a mere 14 days and three hours and 10 minutes away, according to the 2020 Global Mining Symposium countdown clock. You can register for free. Just go to northernminer.com slash GMS 2020. You can also just go to northernminer.com and click on the events button. And if you are a sponsor and you're looking to get your message out there, you can also look for the orange button on that page and then there's sponsorship information there. The list of presenters just keeps growing. It's pretty impressive. They've just added John Hathaway from Sprott Asset Management. And I guess he moved from Tuckville Asset Management. Now he's with Sprott. So, you know, speaking of people who took a lot of flack for 10 years, like Sprott, and here, will Sprott have the last laugh? You know, like, that would be my semi-rhetorical question for John Hathaway. Will Sprott, of course, he would say yes. But that's, will Sprott have the last laugh? Because he really, you know, in the mid-teens, I think he was really getting a lot of flack. You know, it was a brutal bear market. So anyways, you don't look great when it's going down and you look like a genius when it's going up. So keep that in mind before everybody starts acclimating Santa Sprott, St. Sprott. But anyways, a rock star lineup here. We have so many people involved. I can't tell you all the names. Right now we're at 24 speakers. <laughs> that is impressive. And we have a thought leadership partners, our Deloitte, uh, SRK, TMX. And we have a gold sponsor, Orin Resources, Silver. And actually, there are too many sponsors to say here. But go to the GMS page. We will go through them at a certain point. I will announce them. But uh, it's totally awesome. So the events team is on fire again. Let's see what they do next. I bet they're going to have some surprises for us and because they don't just rest on their laurels over there. So that's the Global Mining Symposium, and that is September 1st to 3rd, 2020. Go to northernminer.com slash GMS2020 or click on events, and you'll get all the information you need, from speakers, details, agenda, how to sign up, which is free. Go today. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram at the northernminer. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also post these podcasts. And you can find us wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to our first Mining Minute with Petro-Canada Lubricants. Joining me today for our first Mining Minute is Gord Sosinski, Senior Technical Services Advisor for Petro-Canada Lubricants. And Gord, the ability to safely extend oil drain intervals is a key benefit of the Duron product line. So the ability to extend uh, the, the need to drain the oil and the time in between 
is a key benefit of the Duron product line of Petro-Canada Lubricants Duron product line. What does this mean in practice for equipment owners? Thanks, Adrian. Achieving longer oil drain intervals has been around for a long time, and that should result in reduced costs to operate the equipment. In theory, product consumption will be reduced, resulting in less lubrication expenses, keeping in mind that the price per liter may not be lower, but the long-term cost should be reduced by doing fewer oil drain intervals. In addition to this, reduced time in the shop will result in savings in manpower and maintenance, meaning if you're doing fewer services, more time is spent in production, which means more tons are being moved, which means you're making more money. Also keep in mind that the longest drain interval may not be the best, so it should coincide with other services being done, so you don't have to bring the unit in for the oil drain interval on its own. We have calculators at Petro-Canada Lubricants that are very easy to use, that can help you make the decision, and if it makes financial sense to extend the drain intervals or not with a premium product, or specifically, what that service hour interval might look like before you take on a test program. It has to make sense to the equipment operations and it has to make financial sense as well. Great, so it doesn't always make financial sense, but if I go to your website and try out your calculator, I may see that I'm actually saving quite a bit of money by trying out the Duron product and uh, maybe extending the intervals between needing to drain the oil. Correct. Okay, excellent. So how can people uh, find that calculator? You can get a hold of us at lubricants.petro-canada.com or you can reach us toll free at 1-866-335-3369 and that'll connect you to somebody at Petro-Canada Lubricants who can help you. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Gord. And we will see you on next week's Mining Minute. Thanks, Adrian. And we will have a link to Petro-Canada Lubricants and if you go to the show notes, you'll also see a picture of Gord Sosinski, very nice man. And uh, we look forward to hearing from him again next episode. Turning to the website, you know, this pebble, this pebble thing, this pebble mine in Alaska is the, the story that refuses to go away. Uh, they thought they had some resolution that lasted about couple of weeks and then they got the green light on this very controversial pebble mine in Alaska which is right near a major sockeye wild salmon fishery. It has been controversial for at least 15 years here. It kind of looked like it was getting pushed through by the Trump administration. That's what we talked about on this show and then there were questions. I was getting questions on that a couple of emails saying, well, Donald Trump Jr. has spoken against the pebble mine. And my response is that I don't think Jr. was in the meeting. That was last episode. And so this episode of the pebble mine, it looks like the House Oversight Committee, the U.S. Congress, sounds like they agree with Pocabelli. And they are saying that Political influence was involved in the Pebble decision, and they are looking into that. So these are allegations. So let's take a closer look, and this is by Bruno Venditti from Mining.com. Taking a closer look here, the U.S. Congress House Committee on Oversight and Reform issued a letter to the Inspectors General on August 10th saying the Environmental Protection Agency had been motivated by political influence and not by scientific analysis. The letter stated the EPA's decision was made a day after U.S. President Donald Trump met with Alaska's Governor Mike Delvaney, 
on Air Force One. And then we have a quote, it raises questions about whether EPA's decision to withdraw the proposed determination was arbitrary and capricious. In July, the company cleared the last environmental hurdle for the proposed pebble copper gold molybdenum mine in Alaska almost two decades after developers began working on the project. However, the proposed mine would be built near headwaters of the Bristle Bay salmon fishery, 320 kilometers southwest of Anchorage, Alaska, causing concerns among conservationists and local indigenous communities. And then in early August, President Trump pledged to hear out, quote, both sides of the issue, unquote, after his son Donald Jr. tweeted to oppose the project supported by his father's administration. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has also said that he would stop the proposed mine should he be elected in November. The resolution is an illusion for Northern Dynasty Minerals, if they thought that was the end of it. Then we have a quote from Northern Dynasty CEO Ron Thiessen. Quote, environmental activists and opponents of the Pebble Project have made baseless and unfounded claims about political interference in the Pebble EIS process and of regulatory malfeasance by the professional staff by, of the USACE, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, for months. He continues, but now we have a committee of U.S. Congress repeating those allegations and asking that they be reviewed by an objective third-party arbiter. I say, bring it on. We have everything to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. Sounds like Ron Thiessen is a little upset and, dare I say, fed up with this. He's sort of like, green light or red light, just tell us what you want to do. I, I suppose, you know, in Ron Thiessen's defense, 15, 20 years, we'll do that. Uh, fighting, we'll do that too. Now, there's the Pebble Partnership, which is... I believe the Northern Dynasty and some other people, their CEO, Tom Collier, said, the work of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers on Pebble has been under assault since day one, and it is time for this mischaracterization of their integrity to end. The best way to accomplish this is to have the USACE work on the Pebble project reviewed by the inspectors general. He continues, am I a little fired up about this? You bet. The staff at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are among the hardest working regulators with the most integrity among the federal agencies, and the misguided attacks upon their process are completely unfounded. You know, I'm not sure, like just from a PR perspective, I'm not sure if this fiery tone helps them, because I understand the lack of patience. Like, I mean, it, if, you know... We can only imagine what that's like to wait 15 or 20 years. But this is a controversial mine, and it's not just pie in the sky. Ron Thiessen is acting like everybody who doesn't like this project is somehow an extremist. God, we have so many stories on Pebble, it's crazy. We got to get a new helicopter shot because that one we are definitely overusing. My bad, I'm on it. I actually got a brand new pebble shot, just so you guys know. Uh, we'll get more, because that helicopter shot, my God. So yeah, I'm not sure about this tone. These are quite the numbers, though. According to a study by the Center for Science and Public Participation, the pebble mine, if permitted, would be North America's largest mining operation with an estimated $400 billion worth of copper, gold, and other metals. So if there is that many riches there, yeah, you would think that the salmon fishery would get steamrolled once the operation gets going. Who knows? Um, but 
it doesn't, I, I think if they came out a little bit more like responsible and understanding, I, to me, that would seem like a better strategy. Um, but I'm sure these guys have their high paid consultants or maybe not. I mean, you'd think they've been doing this for years. Anyways, that is the latest. So the House Oversight Committee is saying there was political influence in the Pebble decision. I concur. We shall see. And moving from one controversy to another, Shandong Gold is calling on the Canadian government to approve the TMAC purchase. So we had this on the front page of the newspaper that, uh, yeah, state-owned miner Shandong Gold is trying to push the Canadian government into accepting the TMAC purchase. Their main project is the Hope Bay Gold property. It's in the Arctic, which is sensitive from a national security perspective. Sort of would give the Chinese government a bit of a foothold in the Canadian Arctic. And so I know people, some people might not see it that way, but I think more and more people are. So let's take a closer look. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. Shandong Gold Mining, one of China's top bullion miners, said its acquisition of a Canadian junior that owns a massive Hope Bay property in Nunavut should be approved for economic reasons. In May, the Chinese state-controlled miner signed a $149 million deal to buy struggling TMAC. This is next to nothing. $150 million. That is next to nothing. The company, which went public in 2015, has seen its shares fall from a peak of $10.77 in 2018 to $1.68 the day before Shandong's bid, and to $1.49 on August 13th. The gold giant offered TMAC $1.75 per share in cash and committed to purchase another 12 million shares at the same price in a private placement for around $15 million. The Toronto-based miners' shareholders approved the transaction in June, but it still requires the Canadian government to sign off. Shandong's main objective is to add TMAC's Hope Bay gold property in the Canadian Arctic, a region of growing strategic importance as climate change makes shipping lanes more accessible. Lawyers and security analysts have said the crucial location of the asset could make Ottawa block the deal. And it is under review by the Canadian government, and they're taking their sweet time. And you know what? With two Canadians over in China on pretty questionable charges, I say they just take their sweet time. So, Mark Wall... The newly appointed chief executive of Shandong Unit Streamer Gold Mining Corp. said the net benefit to Canada will be an international company focused on continuing to drive and expand Canadian employment and the broader spend from Canadian suppliers. Liu Chin, director of Shandong Gold Mining, highlighted in a statement the ties between the company and Mark Wall. Quote, we have worked closely with Mr. Wall during our successful partnership with Barrick Gold and welcome him to lead our Canadian business. His extensive background in the industry will serve us well in Nunavut, beginning with the development of an expansion feasibility study aimed at doubling the output at Hope Bay, Chin noted. TMAC acquired Hope Bay in 2012 and poured the first gold at its newly developed Doris Mine in 2017. The operation has been beleaguered by difficulties that began when the recovery circuits did not function as well as expected. Though the junior injected more than $450 million into the asset, it never reached its full potential. The mine churned out 139,510 ounces of gold last year, 
So a state-owned miner is trying to get a foothold in the Canadian Arctic for a mere $150 million. $149 million. To me, this is a no-brainer from the uh, Canadian government's perspective. Um, But let's see what they do. I'm sure they do have a lot of things to think about. Continuing on the China theme, China approves the merger of state-owned coal giants. I wonder if it should be, I thought to myself, simply because I don't have the information, does China approve the merger of state-owned coal giants or is China recommending the merger of state-owned coal giants? I mean, China is approving itself. So let's take a closer look. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi, mining.com. China has approved the merger of two Shandong province top state-owned coal miners, Shandong Energy Group and Yanquang Group, the combined company, China's second largest coal producer after China Energy Investment Corporation, will operate under the name Shandong Energy Group. The new entity is expected to close for close to 7% of the country's total coal output. China is the world's top producer and consumer of the fossil fuel. And then we have a quote from Guan Ho, a Moody's vice president and senior credit officer, quote, while support from the Shandong provincial government should remain forthcoming, it will be constrained by the predominantly commercial and competitive business of the combined group. The article continues, the merger of Yangquang and Shandong Energy comes as China forges ahead with the reform of its state-owned enterprises. So that's kind of interesting. I guess they're reforming their state-owned enterprises. The newly merged company will further increase its competitiveness on the market as it will have a whole industrial chain integrating coal production, coal-fired power plants, and coal chemicals, International Energy Agency analysts said in July. Other Chinese coal-producing provinces are pushing for similar consolidations to improve efficiency. The government of Shanxi, the country's second biggest coal-producing province, approved earlier this year the merger of state-controlled producers Shanxi Coal, Import-Export, and Shanxi Coking Coal. And we have a little bit on climate change here. China will adopt next year its 14th five-year plan, which will provide a roadmap for the country's political and economic priorities through 2025. State-run National Center for Climate Change Strategy has advocated for that plan to include hard caps on carbon emissions. However, Premier Li Keijiang, director of the National Energy Commission, which determines China's energy policy, last year spoke of the need to promote the safe and green mining of coal and the clean and efficient development of coal power. So it sounds like they want to develop so-called clean coal you know, I did watch a lecture at one point about five years ago. It was a geology lecture from the Great Courses, what used to be the teaching company. And the final lecture was on oil and coal. And what was amazing is the professor there, he actually said, you can do clean coal. It is possible. And so that's pretty interesting. I don't know if that's true. That's the only place I've actually seen from someone who I would kind of trust, academic geologist. So who knows? I just throw that out there as something I've heard is like, So when you hear clean coal, don't necessarily think it's crazy. I don't know the details on that, but that is something to think about. And with that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on over there. Never a dull moment 
If you would like to find these metal prices for yourself, simply go to mining.com slash markets and you will find the page I'm looking at. And on August 18th, gold is trading at $2,008.73 per ounce. That is $74 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $28.29 per ounce. That is $1.40 higher than last week's quote. Platinum is also trading higher at $973.29 per ounce. That is $17 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,226.51 per ounce. That is $115 higher than last week. So all the precious metals are higher. I have my eye on platinum. I think platinum at $973, we might say, is the only precious metal that has yet to really take off. So that's what I have my eye on is platinum. Let's see what happens. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $2.88 per pound. That is four cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading a penny lower at 78 cents per pound. Lead is trading a penny higher at 88 cents per pound. Nickel, hot nickel, is down 4 cents at $6.46 per pound. Tin is also taking a break at $8.01 per pound. That is 13 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is a penny lower at $15 even. And zinc is also taking a bit of a break at $1.07 per pound. That is two cents lower than last week. So what do I see? I see precious metals continue to go higher with a special eye on what might happen in the platinum market. It's pure speculation on my side. Uh, and the industrial metals look like they're just consolidating at their very strong levels. They're just a touch off recent highs. So the trend continues. Now let's turn over to... Clive Johnson and my thought leadership interview with him, and he spoke to us from Vancouver, Canada. There's a lot of thoughtful stuff, particularly on the dividend. I always have a sort of soft spot in my financial heart for the dividend, and, and Clive speaks extensively on that. So I hope you enjoy it, and then we will turn to Magda Gardner. Joining me on the program is Clive Johnson, who is CEO and president of B2 Gold. And Clive, welcome to the program and our special new thought leadership segment here. So tell us, it's earnings season. Have you guys released your earnings for Q2 yet? How's the business? How are things going? Gold and silver are doing quite well. Are you guys seeing the benefits? Yeah, we really are. I think it's uh, really great for our shareholders. You know, we've really stuck to our long-term strategy since we created this company 12 years ago, which was to try and build a profitable gold producer and to through accretive acquisitions and exploration. And so now we're going to produce about a million ounces this year of low-cost gold production from the three mines uh, being the Ojikota mine in Namibia, the Fokola mine in, in Mali, and the Masbati mine in the Philippines. It's been quite a successful growth story, and I think it really pays off now that we stuck to our long-term strategy, even when it was unpopular over the last five years or 10 years, to build building gold mines we were doing it, and now our, our shoulders really benefit. So in the quarter, we we had production of 241,000 ounces of gold for the second quarter. We 
had record consolidated revenue of over $440 million. And we had cash flow from our operations of $238 million. All these are U.S. That operating cost came in very low at $385 for an ounce of gold, which was 7% below budget. All-in sustaining costs, so all-in cost to produce an ounce of gold came in at 714 which was 12% below our budget. And we're also in a tremendous, at least our financial shape because of all this. So we're actually in uh, about 630-odd million in cash, cash equivalents, and we have data for 70 million. So we're about 150 million in cash positive position. And that's going to allow us to pay back all of our debt, with the exception of some truck leases. But we'll pay back all of our debt in the next quarter, in the third quarter. So we'll be in a really strong position that way. That allows us to double again our, our dividend, our quarterly dividend, which we introduced last year at a penny. And then we doubled it. And now we're doubling it again to four cents a share or 16 a quarter or 16 cents a year. That's about a 2.2% yield for our shareholders, which is one of the higher yielding dividends and for a gold company. So we're very pleased with that. So the idea is to take some of this hard-earned cash from producing gold very profitably and use it to continue to grow the company, and uh, but also take some of that cash and reward our shareholders with a, with a healthy dividend. So uh, we're very pleased to be in this kind of position today. Yeah, I would call that a very respectable dividend at 2.2%, particularly for a mining company. Is that, would you call it a value of the company, the, the dividend? Uh, it's not sort of a typical, as you're sort of saying, it's not a typical mining company. Put it this way, mining companies are not exactly known for their dividends. So is this something you hope to keep going? I assume you would, but uh, do you have any extra things to say about the dividend? Sure. Yeah, no, I think we, we wouldn't have gone to this level if we didn't feel very confident we can maintain that. Uh, level of dividend, and ultimately the the objective of retirement would be to grow the dividend. But we also think that a lot of people who own our shares like the fact that we've you know grown this company from zero 12 years ago to you know market cap of nine and a half billion dollars Canadian today. So I think a lot of people want to keep us see us keep doing what we're doing, which is grow the company. So that's why we'll we want to find a balance between paying a healthy dividend but having cash from operations that we can use for further exploration success, uh, also for developing the existing projects. You know we have a the Gramolatic project in Colombia, which looks like it could be the next one, and then uh, the Kiaka project in Burkina Faso, which is a large, low-grade deposit, but starting to look more interesting as, as gold goes higher. So, but no, the dividend, you're right, is quite, uh, we're not known for it in the gold space or the mining space, but I think if we're going to attract generalist investors, which we're starting to see generalist funds, some of them for the first time looking at gold, gold shares, they, they're used to dividends. So if you can give them a, a good dividend and give them good profitability and growth, that's what I think will make B2 Gold very attractive. And we're seeing that now to more of the generalist funds. We're running it like a, a real business. A lot of times in the money business, I find there has been more like a business a lot of the time, um, business being a, a profitable venture. That's always been one of our top priorities. I think that's great. And I think the the investor community is hungry for that. I mean, you see Newmont. I felt like Newmont really got that message as well, you know, with their dividend. Again, so that's great. Now, just since this is a thought leadership piece, as you said, you grew this from zero to a nine and a half billion dollar company. What would you attribute that to? And was there a philosophical kind of values proposition at the core? What do you attribute that to? Were you lucky? You know, like, I mean, what what is it that enabled you to? We have a lot of students that listen to this podcast. How did you do it from an intellectual kind of, you know, values perspective, if, if that even is a factor? 
Sure. No, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, Bima Gold was our predecessor company, which I uh, was one of the founders of 30 odd years ago. And BMO is very successful as well. And ultimately, we're taken over by, uh, by Kinross for $3.5 billion Canadian in uh, 2007. So we weren't aspiring to build a company to be taken over, but we had 75,000 shareholders and Kinross made a, a large premium offer. So so it was good for our shareholders and our group, our group decided, well, let's see if we can do it again. So a lot of the key executives and management of B2 Gold uh, were, had the prior success of BMO Gold. But I think it's a, in my mind, it's quite a cultural thing. You know, we always say this is not your grandfather's mining company. We think it's a lot better than what the past was. And that's really based on our key culture, which is uh, treating everyone with fairness, respect, and transparency around the world through the Beam and the B2 days. And I, I think it's really rewarding the way that's worked for us. I mean, and when you look at COVID and what we just are going through with COVID, I think it's a real testament to that culture because the, the employees that work for the company, well, 4,200 of them, and the governments in which we work in and the company all had a goal when COVID hit, and that was to try and keep mining safely, but only if we could do it safely. You know, these countries desperately need the taxes from gold and the jobs that we create as, as developing countries. So that was the goal. But I think there was a mutual trust between ourselves, our employees, and the governments, local and federal, and all these countries, where everyone, I think they believed that the company had their best interests at heart. And because of that trust relationship, we were able to work very closely with employees and government from the earliest days when we identified the pandemic to ensure their safety and, and to keep uh, running the mines very well. So I think we've we've had a great reputation, I think, with our with these people before, governments and employees. I think it's going to be even better now. And I can't say enough about uh, the morale and the commitment of these loyal employees. But I think you're in that loyalty, by the way, you treat people. So, you know, that's been a key. The other key I would say to our success is the combination of being an entrepreneurial company, and I'm very entrepreneurial, Entrepreneurial on the business side, but just very good technically. All the other people we need, financial, all the other people you need in our industry. So we learned an awful lot in the BEMA days. And I actually modeled BEMA off the early days of Barrick, uh, when it was Peter Monk and Bob Smith, a really entrepreneurial guy combined with a great technical leader. And I really modeled in the mid-90s. We took that model and tried to, when we turned BEMA from an exploration company into a producer. So I think those are the key reasons. Experience, you know, our group's got a collective experience of over 280 years of working together, not just in the industry. So you learn a lot. We're very good at, I think, all the aspects of what we do, but a lot of it, and I'm really proud of not only what we've done, how we've done it, and how we treat our, our people. So if you treat people well, I think, you know, you get it back, and we're really pleased with that, and I just couldn't be happier with our the response of our workforce, the governments where we work. It's a great story that I think is going to continue to be very positive in these countries and, and other countries as well. So speaking of your story continuing, what is your outlook? Uh, where are things? You said you were building a new project. Was that in Colombia that you said? Uh, tell us about what you're working on and where you see things going. Sure. Um, we've got a 50-50 joint venture in Colombia, in Antioquia, which is an old, the, older, the old mining district in Colombia, with Anglo Gold Ashanti as our partner. And we're the operator now of the joint venture. So we're taking it now to a final feasibility study, which will be completed in the first quarter of next year. So it's a large, low-grade open pitable gold deposit. This got some really good attributes to it. Um, the recent economics, which we announced in a preliminary economic assessment last year, showed the potential to start production at over 400,000 ounces of gold a year. And the projected all in sustaining costs then were about 650 an ounce. So a pretty attractive project to both ourselves and to Anglo Gold Ashanti. The key now is we, we needed to do some infill drilling to bring the resources from the inferred category to indicated and ultimately to reserves. So that, that drilling is happening right now. In fact, it's wrapping up and we're not expecting any surprises. It's a pretty homogeneous, consistent R body. So we're expecting it to confirm the previous drilling. That's the final piece 
all the other work's done, metallurgy, engineering, we have a mining permit from the government, we're ready to go once that final feasibility study comes out in the first quarter of next year. Now, we liked this project quite a lot at, at 1350 gold. We thought the economics were attractive. So obviously with gold at significantly higher prices, the value of it and then the attractive of it is, uh, increases significantly. So that's that's one that's going to cost about $900 million uh, total capital cost. If we split that 50-50 with our partner, EGA, which our agreement calls for, it would be about $450 million U.S. dollar account. We're looking at generating $900 million cash from operations this year alone. As I said, we're, we'll be virtually debt-free in the third quarter. So we're going to generate lots of cash over the next two and a half years as we would be building the, the, the Grand Latte mine. So we could clearly fund our share of the capital completely from cash from operations if we chose to do that. So other than that, we've got a project in Burkina Faso, which you know we always said needed higher gold prices. It's a large, low-grade deposit with 4 million ounces. Um, we're looking, we're rerunning the economics now based on higher gold, but also based on lower fuel costs, you know, natural gas, solar, hmm. those types of alternatives. So, so those are two things in the pipeline. I would say Gramalati is the most advanced. And then we've got, you know, we're quite well known for being one of the top gold exploration companies in the world between BM and B2. So we've got a $50 million exploration budget. We're doing a lot of really, I would say, high quality exploration around Focola. We have a couple of significant discoveries there. We may be on to another it's early, but we may be on to another Fakola about 20 kilometers north in the area called Anaconda. Also, another discovery just to the west of Fakola called Cardinal. We're doing that right now. So, you know, when we acquired Fakola, it was 4 million ounces. It's now 8 million ounces. That's why we've expanded it twice. It's a great mine, and I think it has a lot of potential to either become a lot, become bigger in a longer mine life over time or additional mines directly in that Fakola area. Yeah, that sounds like quite the combination of low oil prices and high gold prices. That is just the sweet spot, I would imagine. You know, I almost wish I had more time with you. I'd like to ask you on security in that area and everything, if you want to touch on that. But also, uh, tell us, you got this Rhino Gold bar campaign. Uh, tell us about that as well. Uh, what's going on there? And we're hearing all sorts of buzz over here. Tell us about that. Sure. First on security, I mean, I think one of the top priority for us is uh, the safety of our people. You know, we just went through this last quarter, despite all the COVID challenges, with not not a single lost time accident, which is really remarkable. Uh, shows you the commitment of the company and the commitment of our employees that have bought into safety. I've always said, if you want to do some short-term due diligence on a mining company, look at safety. If they do that well, they're probably pretty good at running their business. The Rhino Gold Bar is a really cool initiative that we started a, a few years ago. I got involved around four years ago when I went to the uh, to the Rhino Trust, saved the Rhino Trust camp in northern uh, Namibia, and we saw these incredible people that are walking daily with these animals, trying to protect them from from poaching. the The black rhino. This is the only place in the world they roam freely is uh, is in northern Namibia. So someone in our group, you know, so I participated in that plan personally and in, in giving them a little money to help the cause, as B two Gold Namibia did. But someone came up with a great idea. Why not Why not take a thousand ounces from our Ojukoro mine in Namibia? Take those ounces of gold and make gold bars and sell them with uh, depicting the rhino on the gold bar and call it the rhino gold bar. So we made these gold bars and are now selling them. Uh, they've been going flying off the shelves, but they're through Kitco is selling them. And you can also go to the b2gold.com website to buy one of these gold bars. They're beautiful gold bars. They're from the Namibian gold. So we're taking gold that was deposited four billion years ago by an exploding star that ended up in Namibia. And we're using that ancient gold to help protect an animal that's been roaming the world for 50 million years. So it's kind of a cool historic thing. It's kind of a new form of 
uh, philanthropic conservation, which we're pretty excited about. We're selling the bars at a 15% premium, and that premium allows us to continue to produce more bars or coins down the road. So this can be uh, this can carry on in perpetuity. And it funds the people that are working so hard in the communities to help save the rhino. Timing is great because uh, it's really needed now more than ever because with a cut in tourism in Africa, places like Namibia, that's really putting even more pressure on the rhino because of even more potential poaching. So I hear it's going really well in the protection of the rhino and now they're well-funded and it'll continue into the future. So great project. And if someone wants to own a bit of gold and help save a species, um, uh, here's an opportunity. So the, the, the thousand ounce of gold, of course, today is um, $2 million US. So a substantial. Okay, excellent. So I will have a link. I'll ask Katie to get us a link to that. So that's a great initiative. And uh, yeah, I think that's just about it. Clive, is there anything else uh, on that initiative or on anything else you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I just mentioned that's one of many things we do. You know, we, we think we're we're on the cutting edge of and have been for some time um, on uh, CSR and, and on our environmental responsibilities. A lot of great information on our website about what we're doing in all, in, every, in all these countries. A lot of it's similar to the Rhino Bar, very innovative. I think we're really trying to show the industry that the gold mining companies can be extraordinarily responsible and, and it could be a win-win proposition. And I think with COVID, I think when people look back on COVID, they're gonna, they are going to ask the question, which were the industries that performed well? Which were good businesses to have in your country? mining is going to show up as a very good business to have for people, for governments, and for, for companies and shareholders during a pandemic, during a, a very critical time. So I think there's a positive here when we, when we look back on this as to how well we've done and other companies as well. I think that's so true. I, when you, you saw it in Latin America, you saw it in even in Canada, they reopened the mines as soon as possible and all of a sudden they're getting those tax dollars back and just mining activity when there's a full shutdown. Okay, great. Well, thank you, uh, Clive Johnson. Thanks for giving us your time. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have you back on the program. We can go more in depth some other time. And uh, thank you for joining us. Sure. I enjoyed chatting with you. Good questions. Thanks a lot. And that was Clive Johnson, B2 Gold CEO and president. And we will have a link to the Rhino Gold Bar campaign in our show notes, or I'm sure if you just type that into Google, you would probably get what you're looking for, but we will have the link in the show notes. So look out for that. Now coming up next, we have our feature interview with Magda Gardner, and she is going to discuss her new write-up for the Canadian Mining Journal, where she is news editor, and it's called A Year of Consolidation. Magna Gardner takes an in-depth look at the performance of Canada's top 40 mining companies, and I ask all sorts of interesting and simple questions. And uh, I always like a strong foundation, so I have a good idea of what is being discussed. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview. Magda Gardner has been with the Northern Miner for a year and with Canadian Mining Journal, where she is news editor. And Magda is a production machine. And so we're excited to finally have her on, uh, first of many interviews, hopefully. And with that, let's turn to Magda. Joining me now is Magda Gardner, who is news editor for the Canadian Mining Journal, and she also contributes to the Northern Miner. She often does the snapshots in our specials, these kind of roundups, top 10. And so she has just compiled Canada's top 40 
a year of consolidation, a special report for the Canadian Mining Journal. So we thought we would have her on. And Magda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adrian. So tell me about the report. What what are you guys up to here? What are you looking at here? Um, yeah, so we're looking at revenues. And I think what's really interesting about this particular piece, and that makes it a little bit different from, I know, like, there's other um, publications, both like within Glacier that do the, the roundups like this, um, is that we look at miners by revenue and most of the other ones by bear market cap. So this is actually a reflection of who is on the ground and kind of the most active, at least as it relates to Canada, because we are the Canadian Mining Journal. So um, we look at miners that have a relationship to Canada, either through like a TSX listing where their head office is. So if it's in Canada or if they have Canadian assets. So they need two out of the three to be considered. And and yeah, we look at revenues over the past year. So in this case, we looked at their 2019 revenues and chose the top 40 largest ones. So I think it's a bit of a unique perspective because A, we focus specifically on Canada and we also focus specifically on revenues. So I don't think there's anybody else out there. I might be wrong on this, but I don't think there's anybody else that actually has these particular criteria. So yeah, there's been some movement this year. So CMJ has been running this for over 40 years. And there's been a couple of big new players coming in this year, and also a couple of big players leaving, which kind of reflects, you know, the ongoing M&A that happened last year. Okay. And just before we continue, how would you define revenue for us? Is that basically, uh, I'm a miner, and I produce a piece of ore and metal and I sell it on the market and it gets sold. So is revenue basically sales? Um, Yeah, so it's sales and it can get a little tricky because for a lot of the time for the gold miners, I mean, they just sell their gold bars. I think for some of the base metals miners, they sell concentrates. So I feel like there might be concentrates sales contributing to this. And then there's Cameco, so that would be uranium. But at, at the end, it's either like wool or metal sales or, you know, something that has a marketable metal or mineral in it. Right. We might say of, like yeah. product sold. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Just to make sure we're uh, just to get things on a firm footing here. So you're saying there is some movement. So what caught your eye, I guess, most just in the big picture as you sort of did this top 40, was it the movement or is it the M&A? What really caught your interest the most out of this? Um, so it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting is that um, we saw one big move at the top. That was Newmont coming in after they acquired Goldcorp, which closed, um, I believe it was in 2018. So that was a big transaction. And now um, before, like a company that has their head office in the States, but now they have the TSX listing and they have all the assets that they got from Goldcorp. So that was a big entry to our top 40. They're like at number two. And they're, they're actually con- just in ahead of Barrick, which is pretty cool. They're like within, I mean, those are within like like $100 million, which for them is not much, you know. So I think that will be very interesting to watch, like how they, you know, it's very close. Yeah, you get the sense that there definitely is a rivalry between those mm-hmm. two companies. And yes. when um, Mark Bristow tried to uh, scoop up Newmont about a year and a couple of months ago, it wasn't this PDAC, it was the previous PDAC, that was the talk of the town, was Mark Bristow at Barrick trying to get Newmont. And with all this sort of back and forth, it sounds like they made friends at the end, but yeah, you do get the sense that there's a rivalry there and that Mark Bristow would probably love to eventually 
get past Newmont, but I don't think mm-hmm. Newmont's going to let him do that yeah. without a fight. So it, that is interesting. And yeah. so you're saying Newmont was added as a result of, as a result of the Gold Corp acquisition. Because yeah. I think that's what I remember as well. Newmont always had a weird listing mm-hmm. before. It was like this dot .a or dot .b. It was like this weird subsidiary or something that they did so that Canadians could buy it but it sounds like they have a proper listing now yeah so now they just have a regular TSX listing and I'm just looking at the text now and actually the gold crap acquisition closed in April of 2019 so I feel like once we have this year in which will be the full year of operations because if you look at 2019 there it was only like eight or nine ish months of um, gold corpse revenues in there so I feel like this year's list, they might actually be a little bit further ahead of Barrick because they'll have a full year of the bigger revenues as well. Right. I could see that. And they are a bigger, like from what I understand they're I mean, the last article I saw, which is actually in their last week's podcast, was that they're doing 6 million ounces per year gold mm-hmm. uh, in production versus uh, Barrick's five. Yeah. And, so I feel like they'll be further ahead, but we'll see. Yeah. And they are they are ahead this year as well, aren't they? Or mm-hmm. are they just behind? Yes. No, Newmont is just a little bit ahead of Eric. Of course. And, and who topped the list? Was it Nutrien, you were saying? Yes. They always come out on top. Um and I mean re looking at the numbers, they really just like they're at twenty six billion dollars and then Newmont is at like twelve. So I feel like they'll keep on staying ahead because there was a big merger that happened back in twenty eighteen between Agrium and Podash Corp of Saskatchewan. Right, so that was right. a big merger. So I feel like they will just stay ahead. And I mean, it's it's a bit of a, it's not fully like an apples to apples comparison just because their commodity is a lot different than like old, right? So that's, they're a Podash company. So that's something you need like a much larger volume of just to. Yeah. I mean, it must be tempting to almost remove uh, like potash and that sort of, and you know, potassium or whatever else uh, from the list. Yeah. Uh, there's probably that temptation, isn't it? Like, I mean, they're probably technically a, a miner of sorts, but they're, yeah. Do, do you get that temptation or did you um, have that discussion? I thought about just... it, but I feel like I changed enough things this year that I kind of <laughs> wanted to like leave some of it um, the way it was too. Um, yeah. Like we switched up a little bit of the operating cash flow that's new before it was assets. So I kind of decided that the cash flow that the operations ge- generate. And also we took out um, the oil sands miners this year. So I kind of thought, let's, you know, like take one thing out at a time. Because before you had um, Suncor and CNRL, our Canadian natural resources in there. Right, right. Um, so I took those guys out because, I mean, they have good revenues. They're at like 13 or almost 14 billion and 13 billion, which would put them like in the top five. But their business is a lot different. And I feel like it's also um, a separate like investor base and a separate group of people. Like we would never write about oil news like on CMJ or on um, the Northern Miner. So we did. I'll do a separate table just to show where they would be, to be fair, because it is a resource space type of company, but it's not really like a straight miner just when you look at the technology they use and the processing and the downstream markets. Yeah, like there is a lot of overlap, isn't there? Yeah, from just a, a general perspective, one just probably wants to put that oil sand stuff under oil, even though they're mm-hmm. kind of probably mining oil, you know, in a certain sort of way, but it's sort of like, yeah, so it's interesting. So yeah, so nutrients. There's a lot of basically qualitative decisions you have to make, like judgments. Oh like, yeah. It's not just a pure, 
put it in the machine and here are the numbers. You, there are actually quite a few decisions you have to make when you're compiling. Something. Yeah. And I guess the other one was, and this was just a time limitation because, and, you know, we still had to do all the news and everything. But a lot of the time looking at net income, we have like the net incomes listed. And then later on, there's a chart that shows how much of the revenue actually goes through to the net income. So I would definitely caution people against taking that um, very you know, literally, because a lot of the time you have very large non-cash items that impact the net income. Like, for instance, for Barrick and Newmont, those two formed the joint venture in Nevada last year, and both of them had pretty large non-cash. I believe it was gains that brought up their reported net income when it wasn't actually something that reflects what happened at the mine level, um, yeah. which is kind of why we also show operating cash flow, because, again, like, Net income is not a perfect figure, but we kind of investors focus on it, right? So we put it in there. Um, I think that's but yeah, I think that's, that's really great though that you put operating cash flow because, like you say, if you have like some tax deferral, like I think Cameco, mm -hmm. Cameco for example, I think they're think they think they're going to win this case against the Canada Revenue Agency, and all of a sudden it'll be like a three hundred million dollar windfall, and that probably turns into net income but it says yeah. nothing about their operation and how well they're running that thing, right? So all of a sudden you're looking at exactly. net income and you think, oh, wow, Cameco is killing it, but really they just want a court case and really mm -hmm. maybe they're doing terrible for all you know. So I think that uh, operating cash flow, so was that hard to get that number? Um, so most of these figures are in their um, annual reports. So it was a lot of looking for files, but I mean, once you find the files, it's, pretty easy um and they're all like publicly available it is a they lot are. easier okay. for the companies based in canada and i think that's just like the tsx and the canadian standards that's for some reason if their head offices in canada like the financial statements are a little bit easier to follow but that just might be for me because that's what we look at most of the time but no it's all pretty publicly available between like yeah they're all like available on cedar i think so now, just back to that overlap, and then you get this weird thing, like you get a company like Tech, and they're mm -hmm. diversified, right? Mm -hmm. So that also complicates this thing, because maybe, I don't know if they still have oil sand stuff, or if they still mine oil. I don't know if it, but yeah, like, I mean, all, so that also muddies the water a little bit, I suppose, hey? Yeah, they have a cool division, which um, is part of the revenue. We don't have a, I don't think, I think they're on they are the only coal producing company on our listing. But I mean, they do group all their revenues at the top of their income statement. So that's kind of the figure that gets pulled out. Um, but yeah, like if you start getting into the breakdown, it gets pretty confusing, right? So we just took the headline number. Okay. And now it says here it's Canada's top 40 by gross revenue. So mm -hmm. that is by, again, by the sales. And so did you feel gross revenue was sort of the rawest kind of data in a sense to know like, okay, this is how much product they're selling. And then, so it just gets rid of all the, uh, it's kind of the clearest of the, is that why you, or and have they always done it by gross revenue? Yes. So I mean, the revenue number is kind of, for one, it's easy to find because it's kind of like a market cap. Like they, people have to report their revenues right. every year. Yeah. It also represents all of the mineral sales, right? So we don't just do like gold revenue or we don't just do silver revenue. So really get, I think it kind of gives you a sense of who's actually making money before they have to pay, you know, their operating costs and things like that. 
Um, right. So it kind of just gives you a sense of like who the big players are to the Canadian mining space, you know? I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, were there any surprises for you as you looked at this? Is, is this the first year you've done it? Yes, it so, is. So, so even though it was the first year, were, were there any surprises that uh, you saw just as someone who writes about the mining industry on a pretty regular basis? Is there? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for one, there's a, quite a couple of companies that generate pretty big revenues, but we just don't care about them much. So, I mean, one would be number 15, which is like Turquoise Hill. Um, I think they're mm. in Mongolia, I want to say. Yeah, they're the they got the what is it called the Turquoise Hill, uh yeah the it's yeah it's escaping my uh, yeah it's a big big mine and I mean the company is has its own like TSX listing so it's on our top forty and it reports revenues uh, but I feel like there's like a joint ownership how um, I feel like there's like a government interest and then a there is no I think you're right and for I think Rio Tinto may own turquoise hill or own a stake in turquoise hill and i believe you're right i think the mongolian government also owns a stake in Mm -hmm. that project and it's like this massive it looks like it's copper gold deposit and yeah Yeah. we've been writing about that company and that crazy project for a long time and i I think Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of disputes just in terms of Mm -hmm. it's so big that the government yeah they want their share and sometimes it gets a little uh a little hairy when you're dealing with uh the government mm-hmm. there from what yes. I, I think Rio Tinto yeah, is involved and so yeah, yeah I think you're right so that's an interesting one because I don't think like I've been working for you know CMJ and Northern Miner for like close to a year now I don't think I've seen a single press release other than maybe like an annual results or quarterly results so that's kind of one that's under the radar um another one would be number 22 China Gold International that's um, I don't think they have any assets in Canada, but they have a TSX listing and they have a, I believe it's Vancouver head office, um, but they have mines in Asia and I believe it's mostly in China. Yeah, you and never then, hear about that company. Mm-hmm, I've never I know. Seen. I don't think I've ever even seen a press release. I've been working since 2012. Like maybe I've seen one thing. If you said there's a company called China Gold, I'd be like, maybe, but uh, yeah, so interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Then the last one will be number 38, um, Aero Copper. I think they have one or two copper assets in Brazil and then one little gold mine. Um, so again, like they have pretty big revenues, but it's not one we write about. Um, so those would be like the ones I was like, oh, I didn't know this existed, you know? Yeah, I'd um, echo that on Aero Copper. That's another one yeah. that's pretty low key. It's kind of interesting why that is i don't know if it's a marketing thing or it's uh just yeah do you have i don't any know i think um looking at well there might be just kind of looking at we have the rank 2019 and then the rank 2018 like all of these companies um it looks like they didn't have big changes in revenue year on year so it might just be that like they have an asset they're operating it and if everything is going well we kind of don't hear about it than you know here's our quarterly and if right, they're not no. trying to like solicit new investors if it's like a tightly held stock then you yeah. know they just kind of do their business they make the money for the investors and they everybody's happy no news is good news sort of thing yeah it's just keep the, and you know in the mining uh, industry sometimes i think these guys especially if they are making a lot of money mm-hmm. they don't necessarily like to be in the news like they kind of mm-hmm. like to some of these guys like to be as low key as possible, frankly, especially yeah. when you're dealing with a lot of global players here. 
Um, tell me any thoughts on the royalty and streaming companies? Uh, yeah. Yeah, tell me about um, that. So these guys post some of the best margins, at least when you look at operating cash flow. And I think it's just got to do with the way, I think part of it is the way the accounting gets done. Because really, like if you're a royalty company, you don't have a lot of costs, right? You did your upfront payment when you decided to, you know, give somebody upfront money and then get the stream or royalty in return. But really, yeah. once you do that, you just get ounces. Sure, you have like head office costs. To support, you know, the delivery of those ounces and making sure you're accounting for everything properly. But really, once your royalty is up and running, you don't need to do a lot um, to maintain it. So I think that kind of reflects why they come out top um, when you look at the operating cash flow to revenue ratio. Sure. Um, I think the reason they're not quite as high on the net income is I was reading a little bit into their financial statements and they kind of have to depreciate the ounces, which I think what it means is, let's say you give somebody a hundred million dollars and you get a million ounces in return. Like as you get those ounces, I believe you write off some of the money you gave them up front. So that I think that gets reflected in the earnings. But I mean, yeah, royalty companies, if companies can't get funding any other way and royalties are, you know, their only options other than debt, um, then they can get some pretty good deals. And this might be harder nowadays. And I think, you know, a couple of years ago when companies weren't able to raise money and they turned to the royalty companies, I think some of the royalty players probably got some pretty good deals. And it'll be interesting to see like how their financial performance um, yeah. is over the next few years. I think it's getting increasingly controversial. Like I think I saw a story on Solgold mm -hmm. in their deposit in Ecuador. And there's a story on how, I think they took a financing from Franco Nevada and mm -hmm. the board or like there are all sorts of people because there's a lot of people involved in that project. Mm -hmm. I think the BHP has a stake and it's like this massive, I think the Cascabel or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of seen as like a company maker and even like, like just a massive potential there. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they're signing away uh, some stream, you know, and also, and it's like, yeah, to Franco Nevada for something like $190 million. And all of a sudden you have 3%, you know, off the top is shaved yeah. off Frank or whatever the number is. So I could see it getting increasingly controversial because that's just, then you're, that's money you can't get back. And, and it's not like, I think a company like Solgold, I, one would think they could raise the money through debt. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what one of the I don't know if it was someone from the board, but that's what someone had commented. Why aren't they just, you know, issuing stock or whatever to raise this $190 million? Why are they signing away this mm -hmm. uh, deal to your point about some of these streamers getting pretty good deals? Another thing I'm seeing one that surprises me is that Wheaton Precious Metals is actually one step above Franco Nevada. I didn't realize that they were, they're at 18 Wheaton Precious Metals and Franco Nevada is at 19, but I guess that was true last year as well. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty tight ranking, right? And I think some of it might just have to do with like Wheat and Precious Metals has gold and silver revenue, and then Franco is just gold. So it might also slightly depend on like the relative performance of the two metals. So um, I feel like it might not be like which company's bigger. It could also be a little bit of like when the rankings are that close, then it yeah. might be metals, it might be exchange rates too. So sure. Um, yeah. yeah, that could be all sorts of little things. Yeah. like that. Good point. Okay. Yeah. So there's a few charts here. There's gross revenue. 
and then there's largest revenue gains year over year. So what is the largest revenue? So is that who has improved the most? Yeah, so that's a pretty interesting chart because it kind of yeah. shows you who is moving up and down on the chart. Mm -hmm. um, so number one, like by far, was Equinox Gold. And Alicia actually did a profile of them in the August issue of the Canadian Mining Journal. So they have like increased their revenue by like almost 10 times. They went from... 39 million dollars in 2018 to like 374 in 2019 so that's pretty spectacular that is i want to say that's ross Beatty's. i think he was made the chair mm -hmm. of that and i think they've been on a m&a sort of tear this year I, I, that's just like off the top of my head um yeah so that would and pan american silver as well that that's also a very interesting one and champion yeah. iron yeah um, so Pan American, they acquired um, assets, I believe it was in Canada, um, the Lakeshore mine, I want to say, in, up in Timmins. There was, yeah, the acquisition of um, Tahoe. Yes, oh. Tahoe Resources in February of 2019, there it is. Um, yeah, so they acquired Tahoe. So they had 11 months from assets that they didn't have in 2018. So I think that kind of really helped boost them on the list. Um, and then Champion Iron, that's a company out of Australia, but they have a Canadian listing and they have an asset out east. I want to say it's in Labrador, but I'm not 100% yeah. sure. It's a mine that was on care and maintenance for a while, and then they started it back up. So that kind of increased their revenues year on year because there was almost a full year of mining right. versus kind like of like, zero. yeah, they increased operations. Yeah. Right. So, so in a sense that should also be considered is some of the numbers might be slightly deceptive in the sense that if mm -hmm. someone was just on care and maintenance and they start back up, yeah, they're going to have yeah. the largest, some of the largest revenue gains. So that also has yeah. to be kind of kept in mind. Another sort yeah. of qualitative judgment. As yeah. you look at this. Good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, any closing thoughts on this? Uh, um, takeaways? Yeah. So I think the one main takeaway would be we have the charts that kind of show operating cash flow to revenue and we have net income to revenue. And I think we kind of went over why net income is not a perfect measure of companies' ability to make money. So we kind of said, let's look at operating cash flow. But I think the one point I want to make about operating cash flow, it's not about, um, and this might be, I think this is more of an opinion rather than a fact, but I think it's important to point out that like the quote unquote best company is not necessarily the one that brings in like the highest operating cash flow to revenue it's probably is like the best company for some investors or you know some people that want to participate in the mining industry but especially now as we see people really turning back to gold stocks to mining investment um, because of everything else that's going on in the world rates of return that were you know quote unquote best for most people five or ten years ago Mm -hmm. are kind of not the same because for every high margin ounce a company makes, there's probably a low margin or a medium margin ounce that they kind of have to take away. So it's right. like a, it's not a game you can't win, but it's like a game where the rules change on you and people might make investment decisions or construction decisions or production expansion decisions based on like what rates of return the market kind of tends to expect. And fun mm -hmm. when they start up the mine, they start up the expansion. That's not the rate of return 
that's expected, you know, five or three or seven years from now. So I would say, like, look at the ratios with caution and don't just assume that there is a best company or a worst company. It's like a moving target that you're trying to go after. So, like, approach the numbers with caution and think what might be happening five to seven years from now. And, um, like, everybody's trying to go off and, you know, do what they think is best for their investors, but it's very hard to predict what will actually be best um, without knowing, you know, what the market holds out. Sure. Yeah. Like it's a, uh, it's a metric, right? Off yeah. cash flow, And it's a pretty significant one, but like if your mine gets depleted the next year, like if Newmont has three mines that are depleted next year, that doesn't necessarily get seen in this year's cash flow, operating cash flow, for example. And, yeah. And maybe to your point, and correct me if I'm wrong, operating cash flow is not necessarily a reflection of profit because mm-hmm. it maybe it costs you more. Maybe you're selling a ton of metal, but if it costs you more to create that metal or to get it out of the ground, does that factor in like into your operating cash flow? Like, could you have great cash flow and lose money? You could, but usually operating cash flow is, um, well, to like really simplify it is, you know, your revenues minus your costs at like the mine level. So, you know, like the okay. cost. So those have already like been factored out. in. Yes, but um, it is before and they like investing or financing. So it is before you spend on capital projects. It is before you repay your debt. It is like before you raise money. Okay, Um, so it's basically the, we might say the cleanest metric we could hope for engaging these kind of things. And like you say, an important metric. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's basically shows you whether your sites make money or they don't and how efficiently they make money. Absolutely. So look at these charts with caution and yeah uh, and don't just assume yeah don't just assume that like the highest rate of return is like the best stock out there you know there's many many things that play into it and everybody has like different decisions um both from like an investment perspective for investors but also for like companies right looking out for like what they need to mine as they anticipate what they will kind of need to meet okay well thanks magda that was a super interesting interview And if people want to find these tables that you put together, which are fascinating, they can find it in the August edition of the Canadian Mining Journal. And that should be out on newsstands or just go to Canadian Mining Journal's uh, website and you can subscribe. I believe it's for free or you can subscribe there. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so uh, this Magda Gardner, news editor for Canadian Mining Journal, and she also contributes to the Northern Miner on a regular basis. She's in every paper. So thanks, Magda. Thanks, Adrian. Take care. All right, you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. And we hope you enjoyed the 200th episode of the Northern Miner podcast, the summer extravaganza, the doubleheader. Thank you for joining us. It's uh, It's been a beautiful summer over here, and I hope you're enjoying yours. Still got a couple of weeks of August here, so I am loving every second of it. I'd just like to send out uh, our appreciation to everybody who shared this podcast. I'd just like to send out a tip of the hat to Matthew Keevil, Leslie Stokes, and John Cumming, previous hosts of this podcast who helped build it into what it is. Uh, It started out pretty experimentally, and here we are 200 episodes later. So with that, 
Thank you to everybody. And until next week, take care.